Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined today by Amanda Loudon. Hello, Amanda. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Oh, good. It was very funny. When I come into the studio, I walk past my husband, whose um, home office is in the basement as well. And he's like, oh, what you up to? I said, oh, go and record the podcast. He said, don't you usually do that on Wednesday? And I'm like, um, it is Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone knows it's the day of the week. <laughs> yeah. He's maybe been in the basement a little too long. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Well, I ran 2.25 miles this morning, but um, I hear you are st- struggling with an injury. Yeah, you know, I've been very, very fortunate and have not been injured in eons. And um, I was running trails a couple of weeks ago. And I think I already had like a little bit of underlying tightness, like in my glute ITB area. And I, I tripped and fell. And I think in my PT thinks it wasn't necessarily the impact of falling so much as how I braced as I went down. Mm. And it's kind of jacked up like the the joint between my, my tibula and fibula. Um, tibia and fibula and, uh-huh. um, and also kind of, you know, like the IT band and all that. So I don't know, I, I tried to, you know, I gave it a couple of days of trying to run and it just really, you know, just going downstairs was really painful and things like that. Mm. So I'm, uh, I, I, you know, had a kind of good, good PT evaluation over the weekend to kind of put, put me on the right course. And I'm just modifying all my workouts and all that kind of stuff right now to kind of get it to calm down. And, and it's, it's super calmed down already. Like I'm, I'm really mm. pleased with how quickly it's, you know, kind of responding to all of this. So hopefully mm. it's not going to be a long layoff, you know, cause I mean, I don't do well when I'm not right. I mean, I'm, you know, preaching to the entire <laughs> choir. Right. And you've had, yes. this long, you've had this very long injury, so I'm not going to whine to you. So yeah, no, 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 no. Your, your pain is genuine that, you know, just because there's other people suffering quote unquote worse doesn't mean that your suffering isn't real. Fine. I know. So you told me uh, on email yesterday that it's taken you to an ugly place emotionally. So, yeah. so I just, share a little bit of that. I don't know. I, <laughs> just, I, think, 
I think, you know what, when I was like in my forties, I went through a lot of injuries. And one time I did have an ITV injury that, that lasted forever and a day. And so mm. I think we all with it, you know, we all go back to our history and our experience. And so like, when I hear ITB and when I think it's ITB, even though it's on the other other leg, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It takes me back to like, oh my God, am I going to be like stuck, you know, just mm-hmm. in a pool and, you know, what? Love, and nothing wrong with those mm-hmm. things, but it's not what we want to be doing, right, as runners. And it just kind of makes me like, it, it, yeah, it, it, it makes me stressed and sad and depressed and angry and all those things, you know? So mm-hmm. it just, it just, I need to like go, Hey, it's a new experience. You've learned a lot since back then. You've got good PTs who have a handle on all those things. You know, mm-hmm. I need to take myself back there and, mm-hmm. and focus on this little bit of progress. Like I think the first couple of days I felt like, Oh my gosh, I haven't run in a week and I haven't progressed. I'm not feeling any better. And that makes me really kind of, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, that stuck place is a bad place. Yeah. And I find for me during my, my, the worst of my bulging disc thing, it was that not knowing each day when you wake up, how's it going to be? Am I going to be able to make it to the bathroom like without limping horribly or holding onto the door frame? And, you know, just, I don't know. I, you know, it's one thing to wake up and not know whether it's raining or cold or windy outside, but to be like, how is my body going to be feeling today? Yeah. What's my reality? I think my reality is going to be driving carpool and then taking a Zoom call and all those things. But how how is my body going to fit into that scheme? Right, right. Mm, it's yeah. just not a place where, you know, it's not, I don't know, it's not our picture mm-hmm. of ourselves, you know, of mm-hmm. who we are and, you know, all mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, this week is the, or the past couple of days have been the eight-year anniversary of when I fractured my ankle in four places and and had plates and pins put in a a plate and pins. And oh my gosh, like it was actually kind of good because I'd forgotten. And then, but then on May 1st, that was the day it happened. My husband reminded me, uh, thanks honey. (laughs) Couldn't we just call it May day and be good with it? Get out our Soviet hats and um, dance around a maple. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then, but then I tried. So, and May 6th was the anniversary of my surgery, but it was also the day that one of our friends had their first baby and they'd been trying for a long time to have a baby. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to focus on the fact that it's, you know, quote unquote, baby Ray's birthday, who's now, I don't know. So he was eight. I do know how old he was. Uh, and so... <laughs> <laughs> so I tried to try to focus on the happy uh, anniversary of that date rather than the wah, wah. but yeah 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 so, but you're making uh, progress so tell us about that yes so now ran three miles yesterday and that was the truly the first day where I felt like my quote unquote old, my good, my previous self. (laughs) Um, And just because there's always been kind of a a little hitch in my giddy up when I, particularly when I stop, let's say I, I don't know, you know, want to come to the end of a podcast and want to switch to another or something like that to when I actually stop running, I, I get, I, kind of pull up almost like a horse would and it's the feeling on in my inner thighs and then to start again the first couple steps feel kind of creaky and I didn't have any of that yesterday which was pretty exciting that's so nice and then 
Yeah. And then afterwards during the workday, you know, when I got up from being seated for too long, I didn't walk like my, you know, dad did when he was 92. (laughs) 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 Love my dad, but boy, he was what he calls stove up. So, um, uh, yes. So, and then I play pickleball league on Wednesday night. So I don't do too much exercise in the morning, but I was like, Oh, I feel it's a beautiful day here. And so I went out and ran what ended up being 2.25 miles and listened to music instead of a podcast. So yeah, Olivia Rodrigo was my running companion this morning. Excellent. So, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> oh, that sounds so good. And it sounds like you're heading in the right direction. And I think one of the things you just said that's so key is I think one of the things about injury and returning from injury, it's not even necessarily how you're feeling during the run. It's like that, you know, those next 24 hours, that's a great, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, like judgment of how you're progressing. And so if you're feeling good when you're, you know, like you said, getting up from, from sitting after a while of, you know, later Mm -hmm. after running, that's all really Mm -hmm. positive. Yes. Yes. For me, that is definitely the test of it is that it doesn't, you know, even when I was trying to come back or like last fall, it didn't, I didn't have too much pain while I was running, but afterwards I'd just be a wreck. And so now to be like, Hey, look at me, I need something in the basement. I'm going to just, you know, jog down the stairs and come right back up without having to pause. Like, that's amazing. So, you know, I, I definitely, so we have a refrigerator down here in the basement. There was a lot last year. Hey, can you run down and get the the blue yogurt, you know, the yogurt in the blue yeah. container or the, you know, shredded coconut out of the fridge down there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mom. Oh. <laughs> oh my good. Oh my goodness. Well, you recommended today's guest. She is Christine Yu, an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in Runner's World, Self, Outside Magazine, and more. She focuses on the intersection of sports science and women athletes, which is exactly what her new book is about. It's called Up to Speed, The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes, which debuts next week. Christine is a longtime runner, a yoga instructor, and a surfer. She's also a mom of two teen sons, and she and her family live in Brooklyn. Thanks for joining us, Christine, and congratulations on your fabulous book. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited, too, because I just do have to say that Christine and I are kind of freelancing colleagues and and we go way back with uh, running blogs in the day. So it's been really exciting for me to kind of see her trajectory with her career and, and, and see her land where she is today. So Christine, why don't you tell us a little bit about your running background? Yeah, so I am a 100% recreational runner. Um, I started running, you know, I think, really the senior year of high school. Um, I mean, I'd played sports all my life. So ran as part of soccer and field hockey and all of that stuff, but really kind of running for running sake, my senior year in high school, because (laughs) senior spring for my PE requirement, you could do community service. And so I decided to do that senior spring. But as part of that, you also had to do like 30 minutes of what they called basics. And so most people just kind of walked around the outdoor track. uh, But me and two of my friends decided to start running. I have no idea why (laughs) we did this. Um, But yeah, but it was like the first time that I'd really started to do that. And then I ran more, um, you know, again, just mostly for exercise, right? In college, and then after college. And it was really, I think, after college, that I started to do races, and, you know, eventually, you know, ran a couple of marathons and all of that. 
but yeah, it was running has been kind of a steady piece of life. It's, you know, for sure started off as like exercise and lose weight and all of that stuff, Mm -hmm. but has become much more, I feel like of a grounding practice. Mm -hmm. I love that. And so, um, unfortunately, we know you haven't been running the past few months. So tell everyone a little bit about your uh, your sidelining injury this year. My current predicament. Right. Um, <laughs> I tore my ACL skiing in February, mm-hmm. which in and of itself stinks, but it's actually my third ACL tear. Um, so I've torn my ACL twice in my right knee, and then this tear is in my left knee. So now my knees are even. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm a bit sidelined right now, um, kind of doing mostly physical therapy to see if I could potentially not undergo surgery, but I have a feeling that I'm probably going to end up getting surgery in the fall. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that you could quote unquote cure an AC, a torn ACL without surgery. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily curing it, right? Like, but it's just building up more of the muscles to support the, the joint. Um, I mean, theoretically, when I was talking to my doctor, especially for sure, if you're younger or whatnot, but um, you can get away with not having an ACL. It, it largely depends on not just your body, but also just lifestyle and goals and all of that, what you want to do. So, you know, we kind of were talking about that. I mean, the only reason really that I don't necessarily want to do it is because the thought of having to undergo, I mean, this would be like my fourth major surgery Mm. and having to recover from it is just really daunting. Mm -hmm. And and just thinking about, do I have, (laughs) do I have that in me? But then at the same time, I love being active, right? Like I love skiing and you know, with two bum knees, I'm not sure that I'd still be able to do it really, mm-hmm. um, or if it necessarily would be smart. So if I want to eat and I'm not ready to give up skiing. Um, so yeah, so that I'm probably leaning towards getting it done. Mm, mm, mm. All right. Well, skiing on water in a way, surfing, I love that you took up surfing when you were in your 30s. So talk to us about how you did that and what the sport does for you and where it's taken you. You sent a gnarly photo of you surfing Costa Rica. Yeah. So, I mean, this was totally by, (laughs) by accident. Um, (laughs) My husband and I decided to take a vacation. It was the first solo vacation we were taking after, you know, I have, I have two boys. Um, So after the kids were born and I think my youngest was maybe one somewhere around there. And we were trying to figure out where to go. I mean, we've both traveled a lot, and, but we've never been to Costa Rica. And so when we were talking about this with some friends, everyone kept saying, well, if you're going to go to Costa Rica, you should go surfing. And neither of us have surfed before. So my husband found this uh, incredible surf camp there where we were there for a week. And both of us just fell in love with it, mm. <laughs> you know, which was kind of surprising. And, you know, since then, he surfs more consistently than I do. But yeah, but you know, it's it's kind of become part of our lives. Part of it was it's so rare to learn something new as an adult mm-hmm. and to be so utterly clueless. <laughs> and, you know, it was you know, just bad at something. And having to learn that as an adult, I think, is just an incredible experience, right? It not only is humbling, but I think it really teaches you some flexibility, just, you know, your mental, uh, how you approach things mentally, you know, obviously physically as well. But yeah, it's, it's an experience unlike any other when 
you know, when you do catch a wave and you have that momentum behind you, it literally feels like you're flying through the air. Mm. Yeah. So we, you know, we've gone back to Costa Rica with the kids. Um, my husband mostly, you know, surfs a bunch here in New York and out in the Rockaways. I'm more of a warm <laughs> weather surfer. So <laughs> uh-huh. we actually spend a bunch of time out in Hawaii in the summers with mm. our kids. It's I say it's it's the excuse to get the kids out of the city and get them into nature, um, away from the concrete. But really, it started off because we fell in love with surfing. My husband found this surf break out in Oahu that he adores, and so we just go there so we can so he can surf primarily. <laughs> I can surf some, and then we can get some fresh air. Oh my goodness, Hawaii is a magical place. So you don't have to have an excuse to go there. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, so a, a few weeks. This is taking a little bit of a, a side tangent, but of a few weeks ago, we had a guest on who was Cambodian American, and I asked her about being a woman of color in the running world. Mm. And she said she hadn't really noticed how white the sport of running is. So as a Asian American yourself, does it strike you that most runners are Caucasian? And have you ever felt othered while running? It definitely does strike me as a very white sport. It's something that I probably didn't realize for a long time. I grew up in Connecticut in Fairfield County, which is a oh. very <laughs> white. Yeah, so I grew up in Stanford. Oh, I grew up in Trumbull. Uh-huh. <laughs> Went to school in Westport. Um, so, I mean, you know, from from when I was young, I've always been surrounded, right, by white classmates, white peers, you know, white families and all of that. And definitely you know, felt like I had to keep my Chinese side of me to like myself in a way, except if my mom was making like dumplings for my friends. And then it was like a big (laughs) deal and everybody was really excited. But I do because I think it's in part that, you know, especially when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, there weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of representation of Asian athletes Mm -hmm. outside of say gymnastics or figure skating right, or something mm-hmm. like that. I didn't see a lot of role models out there coupled with, you know, my mom, while I played sports all my life, my mom was always kind of a little bit wary in a sense, mm-hmm. because if I was out in the sun, it would make me too dark or I would get my muscles would get too big. Like she would always ask me like, why are you lifting weights or why are you running so much? What do you, you know, why are you doing that? So it was always kind of seen as like this weird thing, but yeah, but I I do feel like there isn't, it's, it's gotten better, but you know, historically there doesn't seem to be a lot of representation um, from the Asian community. Um, You know, again, because you're, we're not associated with being like the athletic ones, if you will. Mm. I trying to think in terms of answering your question about feel, of being othered. I don't think it's ever an overt thing that someone is doing purposefully, right? Mm-hmm. I think that it's in part some of just the culture around the sport. So I can think of times when like I'll show up like at a group run, or I've been to a group run or something like that, but not feeling welcomed in that space. And, you know, I'm not saying like, oh, everybody has to come and talk to me or say hi to me or whatever. <laughs> but it, it mm-hmm. there are, you know, some aspects of it feeling very clicky in a way mm. that brought me back to middle school, frankly. Mm. And, and it's in part why, like, I don't like running in groups and I don't like doing group runs because 
not only do I just feel self-conscious about my own like running and pace and all of that, but I also feel like, I don't know, like this weird combination of, oh, I don't really belong here. Or if, you know, kind of not pity, but something along those lines, right? Like it, it, it's never really made me feel very comfortable. Mm. Mm. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, it's, yeah. I'm like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so Christine, take us back in time and um, what first got you interested in the topic of sports science and women athletes? Yeah. So, I mean, science has always been something that I've been super interested in. The plan was that I was going to go to medical school and I was going to be a doctor um, after college. So, you know, I've taken it and did all of that, did my whole, like the, all the pre-med requirements. So it's always fascinated. Like the human body has always fascinated me in terms of, you know, how we do the things that we do. And like I said, like growing up playing sports and growing up watching a lot of sports, I've always just been fascinated by athletes and their ability to perform. And then along the way, right, because I tend to be injury prone, becoming more curious too about like, well, how do we prevent injury? Mostly from a selfish perspective, right? Like, how do I keep myself doing these things that I want to do? But long story short, I didn't go to obviously didn't go to medical school. I also didn't get a journalism degree. And like Amanda said, I started this blog actually after my husband and I went to the surf camp in Costa Rica. And that's how I kind of got back into writing. And I realized that I could kind of combine these two interests of mine of sports and women and science in a way that I hadn't realize was possible. And so kind of from there, I'd started freelance writing a bit for a couple of different outlets and eventually got this opportunity to really start digging in deeper into athletes and sports performance and what's going on there and what might be different, right? When we're looking at a female population versus a male population. And it was really, again, going to some of these events in New York City, you know, they have all these events for for magazine editors and freelance writers and going to one of these and listening to someone talk about the female athlete triad. And again, growing up, you know, know so many people who have struggled with eating disorders and disordered eating, you know, had always kind of took it as fact that if you lost your period, you're faster, you're really fit. Mm -hmm. Um, But hearing someone actually talk about this and how that's related to, you know, how your menstrual cycle is related to eating and bone health particularly was like blew my mind away Mm. in the sense that how (laughs) I just couldn't, Hey, I was like, why doesn't anyone tell me like talk about this or why haven't I heard this before? But also from the perspective of, I, you know, theoretically, it's like I've taken all these classes. I was prepared to go to medical school, right. To continue learning about this or, you know, potentially treating patients, but why don't we talk about any of this stuff? And so that really kind of got me, you know, <laughs> down this rabbit hole of trying to understand what are the barriers? Why, you know, just generally, why don't we know as much about women in our bodies? And, you know, frankly, why don't we talk about this? What are, you know, what is keeping us from teaching people about what's going on? Really what those repercussions might be. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So, so your book comes out in what seems like a golden age of books written by strong athletic women, Alison Mariella Desir, Kara Goucher, Lauren Fleshman, Des Linden. So what's it been like to share the stage and the spotlight with those folks? It's a little intimidating. Um, <laughs> you know, they are all just such 
incredible women doing amazing things. I mean, I will be honest, like at first when I, you know, when I first heard that all these books were coming out, I was really excited, right? Because we've never had this many books, especially within this short frame uh, Mm -hmm. period of time come out. But then I got really scared (laughs) because (laughs) I'm at the end, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and so I was somewhat worried that would people be sick of this? By the time with the wave of yeah, crested and, and like are, you know, will will people be done? Um, you know, reading about women athletes and women's sports by the time May comes around. So that part of me kind of was a little worried, but to be honest, like it's been really incredible because all of our books are very different, right? You know, mm-hmm. the the other four are primarily you know kind of personal experience. Allison's. Allison's, you know, weaves in a lot more kind of history and, and social cultural stuff. Lauren weaves in some of the science too. But we were, minus Des, we were all on stage together at the Boston Marathon Expo talking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was really cool just because it was like all of our books were in conversation with each other. We were all ultimately talking about the same thing, right? Like we all love the sport. We all want to make it better. And we all want to make it better for like the future generations. And we're coming at it from different angles. But the, but being able to see it on stage together was really cool. Just the this like holistic um, approach, approach, if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love you saying that, that that all the books were in conversation with each other, and, and that sometimes I think of it as like an immersion class, mm. you know. So that I'll sometimes I don't know, like get really fascinated with like the Waco tragedy or something like that, and so I'll watch one documentary and then listen to a podcast and then read a book about it and a New Yorker article and all this stuff. So I kind of feel that that people could almost do uh, a great books course all on their mm. own of, of the five books. So um, I hope people. Hope people do that. And I mean, your yours came out a month after Dez's. Like that. I don't think I don't think the ground has shifted that much underneath our feet. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. And I mean, frankly, I think what's what my book does, or you know, what I hope my book does is provide a bit more context to around these other stories. Mm-hmm. Because mine isn't just about, you know, a, a personal narrative. Um, it incorporates a lot of anecdotes, you know, stories and interviews from scientists and athletes across the spectrum. But my hope is, is that it provides a bit of that wider lens on the environment and the systems in which Lauren is working within and Kara was and does what, you know, um, Mm -hmm. just to be able to provide that context a little bit more, because I think it's so easy to take like, you know, a memoir like Kara's and say, oh, that's a, you know, that's, that was her experience. That was a Mm one-off experience and kind of brush it off in a way and, you know, Mm -hmm. do the same thing with Lauren's. But my hope is, is that by providing this wider lens, you can see it's not, (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. not a one-off thing. And there are actually systemic issues Mm -hmm. that make this a very common story for a lot of girls and women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the sad, the sad truth that right there. All right, it's time for a quick break to hear from the brands that allow us to bring you this free content. Please consider supporting them as they support us. We'll be back soon.
Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So, Christine, it's fairly well known that women have been disproportionately underrepresented in scientific research in general. So I can only imagine how much more disparity there is than when it comes to sports science. Um, tell us what that looks like. It's wild. So the most recent numbers I've seen are, you know, between 2014 and 2020, only 6% of research studies focus specifically or of sports science research studies focus specifically on women mm. and women comprised only 34% of the participants in these studies which in and of itself is just shocking because that's 2020 right like that's not that long ago but what's even more shocking to me is so of the 94% that focused on men of those studies, only, gosh, I'm going to get the number wrong now, but it was something like 0.5% or something like that. Or no, it was 0.6% of those studies investigated something that was unique to men. So that meant like over 99% of those other studies could have involved women, but didn't. So it's, you know, it just speaks to this huge gap in the research field, but I also think it just speaks to these blinders that exist within the system of scientific research, right? Because it's always been done this way. It's always been, you study men, <laughs> you you know, that's the population you go with. That's where you learn stuff. It doesn't, we don't really need to study women because they're, you know, they're essentially the same, just get rid of the reproductive organs, right? <laughs> or women are too complicated to study because of our menstrual cycles and, and hormones. So, but just the way that the field has, has grown up has made it so that that's that standard methodology. And once that becomes standard, it gets passed down, right? Like it gets passed down from, you know, the head of the labs to their students at their training. Those students then go off and, you know, start their own labs and they train more students, right? So it's a huge trickle down effect. And when it just becomes the thing that you do, 
there are lots of blind spots to who you are leaving out. You don't even question it or start to think about it. And so I don't think that it's malicious on any one scientist, any one institution, um, that they're they are deliberately trying to leave women out. Um, but I think that it, again, it's this system that's grown up in the way that we do things that it has created these blind spots. Yeah. So Christine, then what are some of the many ways that women athletes have been impacted by this gap in sports science? So on a very practical level, that means that women don't have access to the same level of training and nutrition guidelines, injury prevention protocols, even gear and clothing as boys and men, um, because it doesn't fully reflect not only their physiology, right, but their lived experience. And you could just take an example of, say, the sports bra, right? The sports bra wasn't invented until 1977. It was like, you know, height of the jogging boom, but there was nothing to help control breast movement until these three women in Vermont decided to sew two jock straps together and create something. But because the researchers, right, the biomechanics researchers were mostly men um, and the bra designers, who are also mostly men, didn't really think about breasts and breast motion when you're being active, they never studied it. And so if you don't study it, you can't create a garment that can adequately control that movement, right? Um, Because you don't have any of that information. Well, first, you're not even just paying attention to the issue, but then you don't have any data or information to help you design a good garment. And it really wasn't until 2000s, 2010s, when researchers really started to study breast biomechanics in earnest. And it's not just that breasts go up and down, like they go up and down, they go in and out, they go side to side. Like it's, it's a very complicated movement pattern, you know, that someone described to me as like, you know, almost looking like butterfly wings, right? (laughs) Um, Which, which like makes sense. But, but because of that, you know, I think most of us, with breasts and who are active can say that sports bras have sucked, right? Or like have been terrible for so long. Um, And it's only recently that a lot of these brands are starting to incorporate this type of research into their research and into their um, design process in order to make better garments. And it's not like a trivial concern, like breast pain, like so many people experience breast pain Breasts are a huge barrier to physical activity, like especially for younger girls. I think like for adolescents, it's like one in two said that breast pain is or breasts and concerns about their breasts are a barrier to physical activity. So Mm. if that's the case and girls and women are not given the garments that can work for them and you're not comfortable, then of course you're not going to want to go out and play right? Or of course you're not going to want to go out and run. And so it creates this like self-perpetuating cycle in a way. So, I mean, that's one example. I mean, the other examples you could look at really, you know, if you think about things like concussion symptoms, concussion has been primarily studied in, again, in in boys and men who are playing football or soccer or, you know, any other sport, lacrosse. But concussion symptoms may be different between boys and girls, men and women. And so in the same way that we've seen with 
with um, cardiovascular health and heart heart disease, right? Like where heart attack symptoms in men appear one way, but they might appear in a different way in women, that same thing can happen with something like concussion. And so if you're not recognizing those symptoms, you're not flagging those kids as potentially being concussed and making sure that they get to care within a reasonable time. And the research has shown being able to get to medical care quickly makes a huge difference in your concussion outcomes. Mm. Wow. As the mom of a daughter who plays on a co-ed soccer team and she got a severe concussion, I guess about a year ago, it was it was scary. And so yeah. what you just said really hits home with me. It, wow. It is really scary, right? And, you know, how can... I don't know. It just comes back to, for me, like we, sh- the uh, girls and women, I mean, everyone really deserves better. Right. And like, we're doing a disservice to like half the population mm-hmm. because we say that women are too difficult to do research on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Sad. So you share several examples in your book about how this has played out for women athletes. Some of the outcomes are truly awful. And so could you share the story of a female runner who suffered the consequences of the sports science gap? Yeah. So one of the stories I talk about in the beginning, I believe in the introduction, is Leah Fallon, who is a professional track and field athlete. Uh, she, you know, she graduated from Michigan State. Um, she was a great athlete in college, never injured was supposed to be, you know, one of the greats and like one of the next greats, but she's kind of ended up having all of these injuries after college, um, you know, a bunch of bone stress injuries, but could never, never find the right doctors to help her, you know? So not only, so she'd get injured, come back, get injured. Um, you know, there was a lot of issues turns out with like hormonal health and thyroid and, and I think thyroid. Um, but you know, in terms of her under fueling herself, but no one was putting together these pieces in a holistic way, right? They didn't know how to look at her as an athlete and as a woman. And at one point she ended up spending, I think it's like $15,000 out of her own pocket trying to wow. find answers, right? Because like, and she's young. She, I mean, she was like in her early twenties and she had all this potential and she's, you know, driving around thinking, I don't, I don't know if I can make it back. I don't know if I, you know, I'm ever going to run again. And it breaks my heart that, you know, I'm sure that her story is not uncommon. Right. And just thinking about all this potential, we, we, might lose because we don't know how to take care of our girls and women. And we don't know how to treat them first and foremost as human beings, but then also, right, like in a female body as an athlete, um, what are we missing here? Eventually, you know, she kind of, she was able to kind of turn some stuff around. She actually just had a baby recently, which is fantastic. But yeah, it's, it's wild because it's never, I think, especially in our healthcare system in particular, we look at everything in such small (laughs) silos, right? Like you have Mm -hmm. a bone stress injury, so you're going to go see your sports medicine doctor or orthopedist. You have maybe struggling with some nutrition stuff. So you'll go see a sports dietitian. Maybe you're missing your period and you're talking about that with your OBGYN, but no one is talking to each each other, right? And all of those things in your body are not happening in isolation. They are all feeding on each other, mm-hmm. but we don't look at 
people that way. Mm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So give us a little bit of hope here. And, and how do you see the picture starting to change? And, and who's driving that change? Yeah, I mean, I do have a lot of hope. Um, and just in seeing all of, even in, you know, the last couple of years, just all this interest in female athlete related research, I think that there's been, you know, it almost feels like a light bulb moment, right? When people are like realizing that, oh my gosh, why haven't we been studying this and we need more work on this? Um, so both interest from the scientist researcher side, as well as from the general public, right? Like I think a lot of women are just hungry for more information because, I mean, you just realize how little you do know about your own body, right? So I think that there's a lot of hunger. And and so those things coming together has really pushed, you know, the research agenda forward for more research around female athletes. And we need that. We need to build a strong evidence base to really understand what's going on, right? To really even know what questions we should be asking because (laughs) we're really starting from scratch in a lot of ways. So I have a lot of hope in that. And there's so many amazing people working on this. You know, there's folks like Kate Ackerman over at the Boston Children's Hospital, who is the the director Mm -hmm. of the female athlete program there. There's, you know, folks like Emily Krause out at Stanford, um, who's leading like a similar initiative out out there, really also focused on trying to translate a lot of the research into educational things, right, for the general public so people can understand what the research is actually saying. So Emily is working on that with like Megan Roche and they're doing fantastic work. There are programs like at the hospital for special surgery, they have a women's specific sports program there that similar to um, the program up in Boston is this interdisciplinary program that brings together the sports medicine doctor, the orthopedist, endocrinologist, the sports nutrition, like all these folks under one roof who work collaboratively Um, with patients. So again, you start to break down some of those silos that we see in more traditional healthcare settings. So it is really exciting. And then on the other side of things, I just look at the amazing young athletes that are coming up, mostly at the collegiate level, um, but they're so outspoken too. And they are not Mm -hmm. afraid to advocate for themselves and to say, you know what? We deserve better. <laughs> we deserve a, a culture of mm-hmm. sports that's better. We deserve to be treated better. And that's really heartening to me. I mean, one, because I could not imagine <laughs> doing that. You know, at their age, I was just trying to survive college, I think. Um, but to mm-hmm. to be so vocal and outspoken about some of these issues has been really kind of amazing to see and gives me a lot of hope. Mm. Do you see, though, you earlier on, we're talking about how part of the problem that this has just been baked into the system and so that that's how medical students learn about things from their predecessors and then they turn around and probably teach their younger colleagues the same sort of thing. Do you see there being work in the system to kind of break this cycle? And and then the other concern I have is listening to you cite examples of people who are doing this fabulous research. Unless I'm mistaken, it sounds like it's a whole lot of women. Do we think there's any men leading the charge in this? 
So I'll answer the second question first. There okay. are there are amazing men doing the work. Okay. Um, there's, you know, Trent Stellingworth up in Canada is such a phenomenal advocate for all of this work. And he is very involved in a lot of the research as well. AC Hackney, who's a, a professor at UNC. I mean, he's he's been studying this since the 70s. Um, you know, so again, it's not to say that there hasn't been any research in the past. It's just that in comparison, right? It's it's been so little. And it's, you know, we need to kind of continue that to build that momentum and to build that base so that you have a strong foundation, right? To draw from. But yeah, but he's, I mean he's been doing this work since, yeah, since the seventies and studying it and really looking at the effects of hormone on exercise response and training and performance and all of that. In terms of your question about what's happening inside, (laughs) inside the house, um, there is a lot of work. There's, you know, there are calls amongst the researchers to standardize protocols and definitions which I think is a big piece of it because when you don't aren't using similar definitions, say for like menstrual cycle, you know, what each menstrual cycle phase means, or even your methodology is different. If you're kind of testing hormonal status, are you using self-reports? Are you using saliva? Are you using blood? You know, all of those things matter because, then affects whether or not you can compare study to study, right? Mm. And the quality of the study. And if we do want to get to something that's evidence-based and we can use in consensus statements and all of that, you have to be able to compare those studies to draw those larger conclusions. So if we start to standardize some of those methodologies and protocols, you start to hopefully increase the quality of those studies, right? I think the other kind of knock-on effect of that is that, you know, the traditional argument against including women, like I said, is because women are complicated Mm -hmm. um, and scientists would then need to account for the menstrual cycle. And that has always seemed like kind of intimidating. And I can imagine it being intimidating if I was, especially if I was a neuroscientist, right? Like, what do I do? How do I, (laughs) how do I do this? So again, by kind of standardizing some of this stuff, I think it makes you know, doing this work may be a little bit less intimidating, right? So that people, Mm. you know, almost have the stuff, the formula, the recipe, if you will, for how to do this. Um, And they don't have to try to figure it out from scratch. And Mm. I think that's one of the other pretty amazing things I I think about the, the folks who are working in this field is that they are so collaborative and not just, you know, kind of on the surface level, like they like really literally like working so well together and sharing findings and, sh- you know, really pushing each other, I think, forward. And as a result, that's going to push the field forward. Mm. Mm. Well, speaking of, of hormones, we realize that folks are at a lot of different stages of life. And um, we know menopause is a um, hot topic for a lot of our listeners. So I want to touch on that. Um, Toward the end of your book, you write, the truth is that your prime active years don't have to coincide with your fertility. Menopause opens up a new chapter of your active life, not the inevitable beginning of the end. As our population ages, are you at all optimistic that more research will be done on this topic too? Absolutely. Um, Again, because I think as, in part because the researchers that are involved in this, so like, you know, the Kate Ackerman's. Christy Elliott Sale out in the UK, they're also 
at this age, right? And this life stage where they're going through this too. But, and they are all athletes and they have these questions. So they want to know. So, you know, I'm, they're pushing forward and really focusing on a lot of research around the menopause transition and kind of what that means. Of course, the frustrating thing about science is that it just takes time, right? Like to do the studies, to analyze the data, to f- publish the results. So, you know, unfortunately, it's not something that we'll learn about or we'll have conclusions about like tomorrow. But mm-hmm. I do, ha- I am confident that, you know, we will get more information hopefully soon. Hmm. Well, Christine, thank you so much for speaking with us today. And I really hope everybody picks up your book up to speed because it it is fascinating. And, and like we were talking about earlier, it really offers a framework for understanding so many of the other topics that are being discussed in the running world right now. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for being interested in it and, you know, really enjoyed chatting about it with you, you and Amanda. Great. Great. Take care and good luck uh, with the launch of your book. Thank you. So Sarah, I don't know about you, but I feel like, first of all, I just learned a lot. And second of all, Mm -hmm. you know, Christine's really doing all of us a big service with this book. I know. I know. And just, I think everything that can be done to push this ball forward on the field is something we all need to, to work on. And uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. And, and it's, it, maybe the research can't come soon enough for all of us, but, you know, let, let's hope that it can get to a place where it's integrated into the, our healthcare system and, and the bigger picture by the time some of our children become women Absolutely. And, and go from there. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, we appreciate you being a loyal listener and we'd love if you could help other folks find our podcast. It's easy to help. Go to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate us, hopefully with five stars, and then write a quick review. Ratings and reviews truly help new listeners find us and trust that we're a good running companion. It also assures potential advertisers that we have a strong listenership. So please show your support by rating and reviewing us wherever you get podcasts. We're mighty grateful. Our podcast day was produced in St. Paul, Minnesota by Barry Medore from Fire on the Bluff. My dad was, he was a very cautious man and he was all about putting your hands out in front of you when you fall. And Uh so always like telling us not to carry things, you know, because (laughs) what happens if you trip and, you know, then, then you can't. Take your hands, your hands out. <laughs> yeah. You have to throw the cake in the air to get your uh, hands out in front of you. <laughs> oh my goodness.